Lord Jesus, we are grateful for yet another opportunity to come into your presence. Lord, we have that opportunity every minute of every day, but you say there's something different when we gather together, when we seek your face together. So God, I pray that you would make your presence known in our midst this morning as we have worshiped, as we, uh, Lord, have prayed. Now as we come and we open your word, may you make your presence known to us. May you do your transforming work in each of us, I pray. We offer you this time. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of recap before we jump in uh, to where we're going today. We have been uh, in a series called Healthy Relationships 101. Uh, Just some basic principles to help grow in the health of our relationships. I think this is so important because I think the health of our relationships is meant to be our fullest expression of the kingdom. That when people hear about Jesus, it shouldn't just be some story they hear, but they should go, oh, that's the reason why those people live like they do. That's what I've been seeing in them. That they would see the way that we relate to one another the way that we are, as, as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, the way we're unified together and that they would know that he has sent us. We, we talked in the first week, there is a hundred times in the New Testament alone where the word one another is used. Talking about the way that we relate to one another, used over a hundred times, 60 times it's connected to a command to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be patient with one another, uh, to, to hold each other up in struggles, to encourage one another. The scriptures just keep hitting this note because I think what they're pointing at is that when people say, see the health of our relationships, they will see the kingdom come on this earth. We as followers of Jesus have to lean into the health of our relationships because I believe it's meant to be our fullest expression of the kingdom. And we believe that in order to have healthy relationships, there's, there's some biblical principles that we have to apply. Uh, the first one is this, principle one. Your relationships will only ever be as healthy as you are. You are the limiting factor of the health of all of your relationships. How many people are involved in relationship together? At least two, right? Sometimes more, but at a bare minimum, two people. How many of them can you control? One of them. You are the only party that you can control in this relationship. So it takes two people to have a truly healthy relationship, but you can only control one of those two. And if you refuse to lean into and to work on the health of your relationships, you will become the ceiling. The other person can be doing all the work in the world, but that relationship will never grow healthier than you are. So what this is really about is about your commitment to become the healthiest version of yourself and your ability to approach relationships in the healthiest way possible. It, like We are hoping and trusting that everyone else we're in a relationship is doing the same, but we can't control that. Am I becoming the healthiest version of myself and approaching relationships in the healthiest way possible. That's where all of this has to begin. Principle number two we looked at last week. Healthy relationships are about giving, not taking. 
We looked at uh, 2 Peter 1.3, and it tells us that we have already been given everything we need for life and godliness by him who calls us, according to his glory. God has already given us everything we need in this life, which means you owe me nothing. Which means as nice as you are in my life, there's nothing that like you have that I need, I can't live without. God has supplied it. So I don't need to approach relationships going, what am I going to get from this? Instead, I'm called going, how can I pour myself out in this relationship? How can I give in this relationship? Because God has already met all of my needs in himself. Whether I recognize it or not, that's the truth of the scripture. I don't need to come into this relationship going, how do I take significance? How how do I kind of manipulate things in such a way where they see me as I'm somebody now? God has already made me significant because the king of kings knows my name. I don't need anything from you. You are a blessing in my life and God has called us to come together and to encourage and to bless one another, but it's the cherry on top. As soon as I start positioning my relationships to take from you, I miss the heartbeat of Christ. What did Jesus come to take from his followers? Nothing. What did he come to give to his followers? everything he had. And he calls us to approach relationships the same way. This only happens when we realize that we are standing on the firm foundation of Christ. Every need I have has been met in him. Now who can I bless? And listen, none of us get this right all of the time, but it's about aligning ourselves with the king. Am I coming into this relationship to take from the other person or to give, to be a blessing to them. And I had someone uh, ask me after the service last week, there was a little bit of confusion on the difference between taking and receiving. Because, I mean, shouldn't we be able to like take encouragement from people? Or if somebody gives us a compliment, shouldn't we be able to like take the compliment? Yes, amen. Of course, again, one of the one another's that we're actually commanded to do is to encourage one another. But there is a difference between me posturing myself in a relationship to take from you and me coming into the relationship and receiving from you. Do you guys see the difference? It's about the posture of my heart. Am I coming in, what do I get? Or am I coming in because God has called me to love you just as he's loved me? And man, when you love me back and you bless me back, oh, it just enriches my heart, thank you. It, it It is incredibly different, the posture of my heart in those two things. So the first principle, your relationships will only be as healthy as you are. Second principle, relationships, healthy relationships, excuse me, are about giving, not taking. And principle number three we'll be looking at today, healthy relationships handle conflict maturely. Notice what I didn't say, healthy relationships are conflict-free. That's what many of us think. I mean, look, Jesus had no conflict in his relationships, right? We can go back through the book of Mark. You guys got another year and a half? Like, no. There was all kinds of conflict everywhere he went. And he's Jesus. The goal is not no conflict. The goal is to handle conflict in a mature way. Conflict is not a sign of unhealth. It's a sign that we're human. We are sinful beings in relationship with each other. Our sin is going to rub up against each other. We're going to offend one another. We're going to sin against one another, to hurt one another. 
There will come a day, it's called eternity in heaven, when that's no longer the case. But as long as we're on this earth, that is the reality. And we'll look here in a minute. Jesus himself even acknowledged the reality. To offend one another is to be human. I'm not saying we aim for it or anything like that, but the reality is we're going to have conflict. Do we handle it in a mature way? There, there is such a thing as too much conflict in a relationship. I'm, I'm not trying to say that all conflict is healthy. We, I tend to call it just drama. There are certain people that are driven toward conflict. They almost feed off of it and get energy from it. And there's all kinds of unhealth that is wrapped up in there. So don't hear me say any conflict is fine. It's exactly as God would have wanted it. That's not necessarily the case. Proverbs 13.20, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, says, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. All through Proverbs, you find this thing of going, be careful how you let people influence you. There are certain people called fools, those that rush headlong into something without thinking about the consequences, those that try to drum up all of this drama and conflict because it puts the spotlight on them. The Proverbs calls them fools. And he says, the companion of fools will suffer harm. Those that just link arms with them and go, I'm going where you go, it leads to the path of destruction. But the wise, those who wisdom in the book of Proverbs is always uh, built up to be this person that is seeking to be mature, that is seeking to grow, that is seeking to do the right thing, to be righteous. But he who walks with the wise will become wise. And so there is this point where we have to go, hey, if this person is just a drama person, does that mean I cut them completely out of my life? No. May it never be. Jesus didn't do it. But I do have to be careful the kind of influence that I allow this person to have in my life. There are some very, very, very dramatic people that I intentionally spend time with regularly because they need to see health modeled. We call it discipleship in the church. They need to be shown the way of maturity but I'm also not going to those people and going, here's my problem. What do you think I should do? That would be the companion of fools. So I'm trying to paint this picture to go, just because there's conflict doesn't mean, uh-oh, it's unhealthy. But there is an unhealthy form of it. Does that make sense, church? Do you see the, the difference? Okay. So what we're talking about is consistently poor handling of conflict. That is a sign of unhealth in a relationship. But the goal is not no conflict, it's handling conflict in a mature way. So let me ask you this question, and I'd love to have some feedback and to talk about this. What does it look like to handle conflict immaturely? It's one of those things, you know it when you see it, right? You can see it from like across the store. You can watch two people and go, that ain't it. Like, but what does it look like to handle conflict immaturely? What is it? Okay, anytime your intention is to hurt, it, it's an immature impulse, absolutely. What else? My way or the highway. <laughs> I dare you to argue with that. He said it forcefully, like. <laughs> I'm not it's like my way or the highway. Anytime it's, it's, I'm either going to win, which means you have to lose. Like, that's the only option me overcoming you, okay? Okay, to just ignore the conflict altogether. You know what? I would, I'm uncomfortable with confrontation, and so let's just ignore. 
That is an immature way to handle conflict. What else? We, we talked about it the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. The fifth time, I'm going to change their mind, though. <laughs> this time is going to be the one, yeah, to just keep hammering at it in the same way is an immature way to handle it. What else? Okay. Bringing other people in to the conflict that really have no business being there. There's a word for that. What do we call that? Gossip was what someone sang up here. Gossip. To bring other people in when they have no business being in there. What else? Somebody else was going to say something around the same time, it seemed like. Whenever it's like never truly forgiven. And you're just like, well, remember that one time when you okay. did that? And so I was right and you were wrong. The, the good old-fashioned grudge holding. <laughs> Every single time it keeps coming back up. Okay, good. I think when it comes to looking at immaturity in conflict, I always put this caution on it. We need to be very careful how we judge other people because it's easy to go anyone that handles conflict differently from me is handling it wrong or immature, right? Because obviously I handle it the right way. Mm, not always. Like 95% of the time I handle it the right way. Wow, you guys, you took that. Like, it was real. That was, that was a joke. Okay? Or the two, yeah. But he's got the microphone. Um, I think we have to be careful because we are wired to handle conflict differently. One of the things we do when we go through our Power of Great Relationships training, uh, we use the SDI is like our, our tool that we use. And one of the things that that helps us understand is that in conflict, each of us are hardwired from the Lord to handle conflict in different ways. For some, they, they become very direct and they lean in and they go, hey, we really need to deal with this. This is an issue. And they, and they move toward the conflict and it's the way they're wired by God. Some step away from the conflict. Hey, we need to just take a minute. We need to take a breath. We need to gather our thoughts. We need to let some of the emotions calm down, and they take a step away. Some really just prioritize the relationship, and they go, hey, hey, hey this conflict, it is not as valuable as you are to me. Let's, like, let's just start there. I want for you and I to be okay. And so they're kind of leaning in and going, our friendship, our relationship has to come before this. And those are all good, healthy things. But what does it look like when someone who's leaning into the conflict is having conflict with someone who steps away from the conflict? We call that tag. It is not a healthy thing all of the time. But both of those people are wired to handle conflict that way. They're not choosing it. It's the way that they naturally handle conflict and they all can be done in a mature, healthy, right way. They can also go overboard. What does it look like when the person that leans in handles that in an immature way? What kind of stuff does that look like, church? My way or the highway. Or the highway. Typically, voices rise, emotions rise. There's kind of, there can be a powering up because I'm going to overcome you in this. It can look like, again, in an immature way, it can look like a fist fight. Because I'm going to overcome you no matter. Let me, let me introduce you to the highway. Like, what about the person who, who steps back? What can that look like in an immature way? 
when it's handled not in a healthy way. Okay, just avoid, avoid, avoid. Sometimes we have those workplaces or those relationships, or sometimes it's even in a family where, well, we're going to have two Thanksgivings because Brother Joe doesn't want to hang out with Sister Carrie, and so he's going to come at two, and then she's going to come at five, and there cannot be an overlap. They're, they're just avoiding, 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 and it looks like cutting off. Just complete avoidance. They walk like this to avoid that person. What, what about the one who just says, hey, you know what? Like, look, our relationship is more important than this. It can be a really healthy thing, but what does it look like if it goes too far? Yeah. I, I have no principles anymore. Whatever you think, I'm going to go with that because it means no conflict. So you're right. You're right. I was wrong. My fault. My fault. We call that a doormat. Okay? Not a healthy way to handle conflict. So all of these things, they can be done in a healthy way and look completely different from one another. Stepping away or leaning in. It can all be done in a mature, healthy way, even if it looks different from how you do it. But any of them can also go to a place of unhealth. Sometimes we think just be, if somebody is getting more passionate about something, well, that's wrong because that looks too much like anger. And anger is not allowed in the church, right? We don't do that here. Jesus never got angry. Again, we can go back through Mark. Jesus got angry in some of these things. He handled it in a mature way. Though I would love to go, okay, so wait, sometimes I can make a, a whip and chase people? Like, sometimes that could be mature? Really? But he did it, so I have to believe it, but conversation for another day. It can be helpful to say, what does it look like in an immature way? And we can see those caricatures. We, any kind of uh, reality TV is built on unhealthy conflict. If reality TV was just people having healthy conversations whenever they had a difference of opinion, who would watch it? People, like, they thrive on it. They want to see people throwing blows and screaming matches and whatever else. There's something twisted in us that loves that. But I think maybe a better question is what does it look like to handle conflict maturely? We, again, you know it when you see the immature. And there's something twisted in us that's kind of drawn to it. We want to click on that link to go, who said what to who now? But if we focus instead on what does it look like to handle conflict maturely, I think we'll get better results. There are biblical qualities of maturity in conflict. We're going to look at three here this morning. And again, I'm just going to keep reiterating this because some of us have been sold some lies, even in the church. The goal is not no conflict. We will have conflict. The goal is mature conflict, to handle our conflict in a mature way. You are going to fight with your spouse. You are going to have issues and difference of opinions and whatever else with coworkers and with family. Conflict is a part of living in a sin-stained world. But we're called to handle it in a mature way. Does that make sense, church? So some biblical qualities of maturity and conflict. Maturity deals directly. One of the most often skipped teachings of Jesus is, I think, one of the most prudent. One of the ones that, that we could be using every day of our lives, but it's so often skipped over. Matthew chapter 18. 
Jesus, again, recognizing you're going to have conflict in your life. And so he doesn't say, look, once you're perfect, you won't have to worry about that. But until then, here's some instructions. He just jumps in and goes, look, in the reality, your brother is going to offend you. It's going to happen. Here's what to do when he does. And so in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. So let's start to walk through there, because Jesus gave us a very linear process to walk through. What is step one if you have an issue with your brother or sister? Go to them directly. Maturity deals directly in conflict. Does that mean I go and get some people on my side first and I go, I'm right in this, right? And they go, yeah, you are. And I go, cool, now let's go talk to them. No, again, gossip. Go directly to your brother or sister. And that word rebuke there literally means to expose, to help them see what's really going on. Hey, when you did that, man, that really made me feel like this. And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm having a hard time getting over it. I, we really just need to have a conversation. You and me. And if that doesn't work, take one or two more with you so that the testimony of two or three, what? Witnesses. Not just two or three people that I told and they agree with me that you were a jerk. If, it, if you and me were the only ones there and you said something that hurt my feelings... And I go to you and I say, hey, that, that felt out of bounds. Like, I know you were having a rough day, but whatever it is. And I come to you and you go, no, what I did was fine. Get out of my face. Here's the hard part, church. Biblically, I have no recourse. I can, we'll come back to it here in a minute. There, I don't get to go bring other people in. Guess what you don't get to do? Go tell your pastor. If you come to me with that, hey, so-and-so said this to me and it really hurt my feelings, my first question is going to be, well, what did they say when you approached them about it? And you, oh, I, I, I haven't talked to them yet. Then time out. We, we can't have this conversation. You need to go talk to them first. Or if you come and you go, hey, I talked to them and, and, and they said they didn't care. What do I do? I'm going to lead you to pray for your brother to bless your brother or sister. Again, I'm just using the term from here, but it's anyone in your life. But I can't come tag team them with you. I was not there. I'm not a witness to this. Scripturally, you bring some witnesses along, and if they still won't listen, then it comes to the church. We are so apt to skip steps in this. And listen, I'll tell you, here's a part that I struggle with this that I'm not sure exactly what to do with is where does like going and getting counsel come from? going to someone wiser than you and saying, hey, here's the situation. Like, I want to handle this rightly. I'm going to tell you this is my own personal opinion, so hold it open-handed because the Bible doesn't give us clear step-by-step -step on that. I still think you should probably go to that person first, even to try to deal with the conflict imperfectly. Hey, you know, I'm not even really sure how to say this, but I just, I know I'm supposed to come directly to you, so I'm going to try that. And if that doesn't go well, then maybe bring someone else in to go, hey, help me. What steps should I take here? We are so quick to go to other people outside of the circle, though, 
when we are called biblically to go deal directly with that person. Be that your spouse, be that a coworker, be that someone you don't even know that well. But you just had that incident and it offended you to go to them directly. To expose, to rebuke what happened. Rebuke sometimes is used as this like real hard, like let me tell you something. That's not what it means here. But to go and to try to expose what happened so that you could win your brother back. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this directness in maturity. And he says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. So first of all, Paul says, don't be angry, right? Because anger is sinful, right? This is a sidebar. We have some weird teachings that have come around for a long time in the church where there are certain emotions that are bad. We have good emotions and bad emotions. And if you're angry, like obviously that's a bad emotion. You need to stop being angry. Paul doesn't say, first quit being angry. He says there's a way to be angry and not sin. Certain things are going to make us angry. Certain things are going to make us frustrated. Can you control that? Can you just flip the switch and turn it off? Can you guys? I don't have that switch. Most of us are not able to just go anger off. It's inappropriate right now. It, it, those emotions are there, but Paul says there's a way to deal with it that is not sinful. And to even go to that person and go, hey, when you did this, it, it really made me angry. And I'm trying to even figure out why, but I just want to talk with you about that because I was really offended there. I can be angry. It's not a sinful thing to be angry. I have to be careful because in my anger, it is much easier to cross over into sin, which is why Paul was tying the two together. Be angry and do not sin. Here's the direct part. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If somebody comes to me and goes, hey, last month you did this and that bothered me and I'd love to talk to you about it. My first thought is, why are we just talking about it now? A whole month went by? Are you kidding? We are called to deal quickly, directly, when we are offended in a situation. Why? So that the devil doesn't have an opportunity. Listen, and, and this can be hard for some of us. I'm the kind who leans in directly. When, I'm, when, when I enter conflict, I move towards someone. I have to be very careful in my anger not to sin in that way. What does it look like to deal directly when you're someone who's wired to take a step back? Is it wrong for you to take a step back? Not at all. That's how God wired you. But how do you balance the two? I'm going to take a step back, but maybe I need to send them, uh, maybe I need to write them a letter and just say, hey, I would love to talk with you. I'm trying to process through some of this, but like, here's what happened, and can we figure out a time to sit down and talk? Sometime in the next couple of days, I would love to talk with you. I need that space, but I also know my tendency is just to keep backing up, and that's not what maturity looks like. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you need to take a step back, then give yourself that space, but set a clock. By tomorrow, I need to approach them with this. Maybe it's something at work, and okay, it's the weekend. By Monday, we, we have to have that conversation. Don't let the sun go down on your, on your anger, because that gives our enemy a foothold where bitterness starts to come up and we start replaying that situation again and again and again. And now it's about overcoming that person. Now it's about how right I am and how wrong they are. And, and it just leads its way into immaturity. Maturity deals directly, directly with the person 
and directly with the issue. Does this make sense, church? Are you following me? Okay. Biblical characteristic number two, maturity owns its part. Rob Reamer in his book, Soul Care, says this, owning your part doesn't validate anyone else's sin that has been committed against you. If you are in a relationship and 10% of the relational problem is your fault, then you need to own, that says one, own 100% of your 10% without any excuse. And chances are you're responsible for more than 10%, but you can never change a relationship by focusing on the other person's faults. If you are in relationship with someone and you have conflict, what we're commanded to do biblically, what maturity chooses to do is to step back and go, okay, what part of that is mine? What did I do wrong? What, you don't have to ask the question, what did they do wrong? You're already going to be naturally rehearsing that. You've got that on lock. But what maturity does is goes, what's mine to own? Maybe everything in the beginning was theirs. They started the ball off, rolled them down the wrong path. and now, But the way I responded, that wasn't a healthy response. So maybe the, it started out, it was their fault. And it's more their fault than it is your fault. What maturity does is owns, it's 10%, it's 40%, it's 60%, and comes and says, hey, when this happened, the way that I responded was wrong, and I need to ask for you to forgive me. We're terrified to do that. Why? Because what if the other person goes, thanks for apologizing. It was all your fault. That, that's what we play in our head, and that would be unjust. And so we go, so... If they were more at fault than me, they need to come first. And once they've groveled adequately, then I'll go, yeah, I'm sorry too. It's always the, the role of maturity to move towards immaturity. For those who are mature to step back and to go, what part of this is mine and how do I own it? How do I move toward them and go, hey, yeah, there was some, there's some stuff that we need to talk about. Some things happened that, like, that offended me, but I just want to start without any excuses saying this that I did was wrong, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? In an ideal situation, they come back and they go, of course I forgive you, and hey, you know what? All of this was wrong that I did, and I'm so sorry. Like, those do happen, but even if they don't, what I did was still wrong, Right? Even if, well, if they hadn't done that, then I never would have done this. Well, they did, and so did I. I was wrong, and I need to own it before God and before them. The plank in your eye thing. We love that one. We're like, oh, man, you got that speck, and until you get that speck out, we're walking around with a two-by-four sticking out of our face. We have to deal with our own junk first. What I did was wrong, and I need to own that before God and before you. 1 John 1.5 uh, speaks to this idea. And he uses the, um, the analogy of light and darkness. Walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. In the light being, I've owned it all. There, there's nothing hidden. In the darkness being, there's all of this stuff that like, I don't want anyone to see. Or until you come and apologize, I'm not admitting what I did. And we, we kind of hide it. And he says, now this is the message we have heard from him, him being Jesus, and declare to you, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. 
If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me tie these two things together. The more indirectly I deal with you, the the more time I let go before you and I are going to have that conversation, the more convinced I become that I have no sin. It was all your fault. In the beginning, I was kind of like 80-20, 20 me, 80 you. After a day or two, it was 100% you because I was fully justified in everything that I did. And I'm convinced that I have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. But we are called to be people of light, to walk in the light. I'm not trying to hide it or excuse it away. This that I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? To walk in light before God and before men. Look at the tie-in. It almost seems like John misspoke in this passage here. It says, if we walk in the light as he, Jesus himself, is in the light, we'll have fellowship with Jesus, right? If we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. To walk in the light is not just some, only God can judge me. He knows everything, but like, I don't need to tell you anything. To walk in the light with Jesus is to walk in the light with you so that we can have, that word fellowship doesn't just mean be okay. It's this like knit together bond that we have because we have chosen to walk in the light, to own our sin and to seek forgiveness from him who promises to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and from you, my brother and my sister. Maturity deals directly. Maturity owns its part. And maturity finally moves towards reconciliation. Back to Matthew 18, the the first thing that Jesus taught there. says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. That term, won your brother back, literally means gained him back. You've avoided losing your brother. What's the point of going and telling my brother about his sin, about the way that he offended me? It's so that I can be justified, right? So that I can go, yeah, say you're sorry. No, so that I can be reconciled to my brother, so that we can restore the relationship we have. It's to avoid losing him, to avoid that relationship being broken. The goal of going and dealing directly with that person is not to overcome them, not to prove how right you are, but is because they are so valuable to you. They are your brother and your sister that I I can't stand the thought of us having a broken relationship. I can't stand the thought of losing them. So I go towards them because I want to be reconciled. It starts to make a little more sense when Jesus, again, in Matthew 17 said, by your unity, the world will know that you sent me. This is not a typical human thought. They are so much more valuable to me. I don't know if I can make it without them, but this is a very Christian thought. They are my brother and my sister, and the thought of us having broken relationship, it wounds me so deeply I have to go to them. 
can't stand the thought of losing my brother or my sister. We need to be reconciled. All of this comes back to what God has done for us. We broke relationship with God. 100% our fault. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve started the ball rolling. They chose sin and broke relationship with God, and we have been choosing it ever since. And we don't get to look at God and go, well, yeah, but if you hadn't, it was 100% our fault. And what was God's response? He moved towards us. He came to where we live, lived in the, in the dirt and the mud with us, and gave himself as a sacrifice. Why? To be reconciled to us. Because it broke the heart of the Father to live in a broken relationship with us. And so instead of waiting for us to get our act together and to come to him, he moved towards us to be reconciled with us. And now he calls us to live in the same way with one another. Ephesians 4.22, right? it's the verse right before Paul talks about, um, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. He says this, you took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. So he goes, look, the old way of handling things is gone. You are now new creations and God is renewing your minds. He's helping you to see things in a different way. And then he goes on to describe it. And he says, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down. D deal with each other directly. And he goes on in verse 30 to say this. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. He goes, look, you have now been made into the image of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stand up there and slander and yell insults. But he comes instead in kindness and compassion, forgiving to be reconciled, to be drawn back together. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. None of us has the right to stand up there and go, well, I've never owed a debt to anybody else, so why should I? Like, we have all been forgiven greater than we ever could have earned. Who are we to then stand and go, but what you did, it's too big. We have no right. In fact, Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, starting uh, with teaching his disciples to pray, he says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. And then he starts to describe what it looks like. God's kingdom on earth. Your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. There's this dependence on the Father. Living out his kingdom on earth looks like being dependent on him. Okay, what else? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And they would have gone, wait, what? But what they did was really, really bad but forgive us just as we've been forgiven. And don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one who thrives in our unforgiveness. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And in case they were missing the point and going, 
uh, Jesus, what does that have to do with it? He goes right on in verse 14. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. He says there is something directly tied. If you are unable to extend forgiveness, it means you've never really received it in the first place. Because a fruit of receiving the forgiveness of God is then having compassion and the ability to extend that same forgiveness to others. Jesus tells this parable, we're not going to take the time to go through the entire parable, but just in quick story form, he says there's this servant that comes before his master, and he owes, it's like a hundred years worth of wages that he owes to his master. And he comes in and he's trying to make some excuses, I could try this, I could try that, just don't throw me into prison. And the master comes and says, this is too big for you. Like, I forgive you your debt. Go and be free. And so the man is like, I, I never could have paid it off in the first place. That's incredible. And he starts walking out of the place. And on his way out, he sees a guy that owes him about a year's worth. And it says that he begins to start strangling that man and going, I'm throwing you into prison until you pay me what you owe me. Because look, you could pay me. It might take a couple years, but this is a doable thing. You owe me now. And it says that when, when the master hears of this, he calls that servant back in and he goes, you didn't get it at all. You were forgiven more than you ever could have paid. And yet you're holding this man to his debt. And then he actually, the master says, you'll be thrown into prison until you pay me everything you owe me. Because you didn't understand it. If we have an inability to extend forgiveness, to move towards others in reconciliation, it brings up some pretty scary heart questions. Have I received his forgiveness? Do I realize what it means to be reconciled with my father? Because if I did, it would play itself out in extending forgiveness and reconciliation to others. Maturity always moves towards reconciliation. Now again, this is a two-party system we got going on here and we can only control one of them. The other person may want nothing to do with it. The other person may not be in a healthy place and all of this other stuff. There's a time we can have that conversation. But right now, it's simply for looking at our own hearts. Have I closed the door to reconciliation? Or am I willing to extend forgiveness, even if they don't ask for it? Am I willing to be the one, even as the offended party, to move toward them, even if they're not coming to me going, man, I'm so sorry for what I did, because that's what my father did for me. While we were still enemies of God, Christ came and died for us. Who are we to withhold that from our brothers and our sisters? So let me, let me ask this question again. I'd love to have some conversation here. What does it practically look like to move toward reconciliation? Like, what, what is it? What are, what are some steps? How do we get from I'm offended, I'm angry, to I love you? Let, let's keep going through life together. That, that, that's a pretty big gap, yeah? How do we practically begin to move in that direction toward reconciliation? If we can't answer the question, then we're sunk anyway. How do we begin to move? toward reconciliation. Well, what the Lord said to me, like speaking to me, I guess I don't really know how to do it very well 
I don't think any of us naturally move towards any of these mature things. <laughs> I, th there's, yeah. Many of us, again, it starts with what God has done in us and now what we're called to offer to others. But what many of us do is we go, yes, God has offered me forgiveness and reconciliation, but it, we make it conditional. As long as I don't do this, as long as I don't act like that, as long as I don't feel this way or this way, me and God are good. But as soon as I make a mistake, we have this picture in our mind of God up there stepping away from us going, fix it and I'll come back. And we, we create this very conditional relationship with God that his word does not give us. We are fully accepted. We are fully loved. We, are, we have the opportunity, if we'll only let it, to be fully reconciled to God. And as we begin to lay down some of those lies that we have, you'll find that you stop looking at other people and going, well, as long as you're doing this and this and this, you stay over there. God doesn't treat me that way. And now I start having this heart to others going, even in your mess, I want to move toward you. So, so part of it is having a, that right understanding of what it means to be reconciled to the Father so that we can offer that just as freely, just as unconditionally to others around us. Okay? What else? I don't know if this answers the question directly, but one of yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For forgiveness and reconciliation are forever tied together. You cannot untangle them. And there's this thing with unforgiveness. We feel like if I hold unforgiveness toward that person, I'm, that I'm somehow hurting them. And most often, they're sleeping fine at night. They don't even know that something's going wrong. I'm the one losing sleep. I'm the one anxious about it. I'm the one growing bitter. It's been referred to as drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's silliness. And so until I can deal with that forgiveness and, and let it down, release that person. Here's what forgiveness means. It's, it's actually an accounting term. You don't owe me anything. It's to release someone for their debt. You hurt me, and so in my head I went, they owe me now, 
And forgiveness is going, you don't owe me anything. It's not saying what they did was okay. It's not going, hey, that's fine, come hurt me again. But it's saying, you don't owe me anything for that. And what you will find is the weight is taken off of your shoulders. They may hear it and go, oh, thank you so much. But you will breathe easier and sleep easier at night because of it. Forgiveness, it has to start with that choice to forgive. The people that we don't forgive, the people that that we have broken relationship with, in a very practical term, whether we will use this label or not, what they are is our enemies. We, We have an adversarial relationship. They are our enemies. What does the Bible say to do about our enemies? What is it? Love them. Pray for them. Bless them. A very practical term. Here, well, here, let me take a step back. The first thing that I've had to do in a lot of these situations is actually put that label on that person. And sometimes it's been very good friends even, but I've had to go, at least right now in our relationship, we've set it up where that person's my enemy. And I don't say that as in like, so let's get ready for war. I say that as in it makes it very clear now. I'm called to pray blessings over them. I'm called to forgive them, to show them kindness, even like Jesus says that at times it'll feel like pouring coals on their head because enemies aren't kind to one another. What are you doing? But to bless them, to pray for them, to pray for even like what, what, is, what are things that I want to see in my own life and start praying that into theirs, even as wrong as they are and as much as they hurt me. If they're my enemy, then I have a very clear call in scripture to pray for their blessing. I'm very dramatic, yeah. Right. Right. Jesus has a saying where he says, those who are faithful in the small things can be trusted to be faithful in the big things. And it works in all things. I mean, that's just a biblical principle, period. But especially in this, if I can't work toward reconciliation in the small offenses, what do I think I'm going to do when the big ones happen? It has to be this daily working out so that it becomes second nature. This is now... As, as my mind is renewed, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, this is now how I approach things. Someone has offended me. I need to deal directly with them. We need to be moving toward reconciliation. Kim, there was a, uh, you read somewhere, I have here, I meant to ask you before, uh, the saying about keeping the welcome mat out. Yeah. Who, do you remember who came up with that? 
Okay, Andy Stanley, he has, there's actually a four-part series that he went on on this whole thing about putting together broken relationships that I, I would truly recommend. Um, he's not hard to find, just Google Andy Stanley. It was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, but one of the things that he talks about is this idea of moving towards reconciliation, and he acknowledges all you can control is you. You can't make a relationship be reconciled because the other person may still be stiff-arming. The problem is when we pull in the welcome mat and we go, this is as close as you come. You, we as followers of Jesus are called to leave the welcome mat out. I am gonna be open to reconciliation with you. I'm gonna be doing my part. And when you're ready, the welcome mat is still out. We, we, can, we can move there when, when you're ready, but I'm gonna be doing my part and I'm gonna refuse to pull in the welcome mat. There, I've heard some pretty destructive thinking, um, even from some people in our church who have been dealing with some, some real, some true difficulties in relationships, but there's been things like, well, I've forgiven, but I'm never gonna talk to them again. And going, because hmm. again, it, for me, it's so clear, it all comes back to the Father. What if the Father would have said that? Okay, fine, you're forgiven. Hell is off the table, don't talk to me. I'd be like, oh, well, I mean, yay, no hell, but like, that's as far as we go? But we have a father who invited us all the way in, who said, not only are you forgiven, I want relationship with you, and even deeper than, than you can imagine. That's what the father has done for us, and now he's called us to live in the same way, to leave the welcome mat out. The apostle Paul says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone that I'm going to do the hard work of, of forgiving and reconciling and moving toward, and, we're going to, and I'm going to keep coming to you to deal with these issues when they come up. Regardless of how you respond, I'm going to do my part so that I can have a clear conscience and say, as far as it concerns me, I'm at peace with everyone. There's a, a pastor named John Maxwell who says, um, there may be people in my life that don't like me, but the feeling is not mutual. And he actually, and he makes this, this convicted statement where he says, I will die with no enemies. Other people may not like me, but I refuse to live as an enemy with someone else. I will pray blessings over them. I will move toward them as much as they will let me. Other people may not like me, but the feeling is not mutual. That, I don't think he said that lightly. And he didn't start there. That is work to move towards. But as we do, we begin to look more and more like our heavenly father. And that is, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, the world will demand a reason for the hope that they see in us. When they see that kind of relationship, we won't have to be going, how do I put Jesus into this conversation? I legitimately think people will be going, what is it that you have? How are you not so angry you're spitting right now? How are you able to love them that well? How are you able to, it doesn't make sense. And then we have the wide open door of going, it's what Jesus did for me, and now I simply get to live it out with others. Does this make sense, church? So as we're gonna close, we're gonna sing a song, Good, Good Father, because I truly believe that if we're actually going to move forward in this, it all starts with having a better understanding of what our Father has done for us. Because he first loved me, now I have the ability to love others. So would you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, 
may we see you more clearly. For those of us who have put some conditions on your love and your forgiveness that you never put there, may we see you more clearly. The Father with his arms open wide, who has paid the price, who has done the work so that we could now run into those arms. If there's hurdles that we've put in the way, God, would you clear them out? May we see the work that you have done in our lives so clearly that, God, we have no choice but to turn and to pour it back out on others. Truly, that life would overflow in us and without us even trying would be splashing out on those around us. God, may we follow the very clear steps of Jesus to deal directly with one another, to, to offer the, the forgiveness that we've been offered, to own our parts and, and walk in humility and to be reconciled to those around us. As Paul said, as far as it concerns us to live at peace with everyone. May you do this work in us, God. This isn't just about us trying really hard to repay some debt. We could never repay the debt that we owe you. But you have canceled it, you have adopted us in, and you have empowered us to live and to love like you. So would you take us steps further this week, God, I pray. May we move in your direction, which is moving towards others. We love you and we trust you with this. As you prayed, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.